So one of the first things we're going to talk about when it comes to getting in, getting started in real estate investing or, you know, anything, and, and most of this will apply to whether you're getting into real estate, buying companies, businesses, things like that. You know, first and foremost, you, you need the education. You have to educate yourself. Uh, when it comes to real estate, what do I mean by education? You need to know the, the type of, you know, asset you want to invest in. You need to know the language of the business. You need to know, you know, what's going on in the markets and know the market that you want to invest in. Uh, and things like that, you know, so from an education standpoint, language of the business, you know, even starting with real estate, what is real estate? You know, real estate's an asset class, just like cash, stocks, bonds, uh, alternative, it's an alternative asset, um, you know, like equity capital, private, uh, private equity, art, cryptocurrencies, you know, those are alternative assets, real estate is an alternative asset. A lot of people call different types of properties in real estate classes of real estate, and that's not accurate. So real estate is an asset class. Within that asset class of real estate, there are types. And there are basically four main types, uh, residential, commercial, um, uh, residential, commercial, uh, you'll have land, industrial, and then there's special, uh, you know, special use types that are like schools and, um, you know, public properties, parks, you know, things like that. Those are, those are usually within that, you know, commercial sector. And then within each of those, like residential, you know, commercial, industrial land, you have subtypes. So like on residential, you have single family, you have um, single family attached, you have single family attached, which would be two, three, four units. A lot of people think that a four unit property or a duplex or a triplex is multifamily. It's not. Uh, anything less than five unit, units is residential attached is what that's called. And that could be all types of different things, four flats, quads, tr you know, triplexes, you know, all those types of things. Townhouses are single family attached. So commercial townhouses are residential, single family attached. Commercial starts at five units and up. So if you have a fiveplex and up, that's commercial multifamily. Uh, and then, you know, there's other types of real estate, like under commercial, you know, self-storage would be a subtype. Um, uh, you know, flex space would be a subtype. Warehouse would be a subtype. Um, you know, hotels would be a subtype. Uh, retail would be a subtype, all those types of things. And then within the types, then you have classes of those types, which are A, B, C, and sometimes D. And those are usually based on age, location, condition, you know, things like that. So when I say language of the business, you want to know all of those things. You know, what, what types of assets are you interested in? Uh, and then when it comes to the market, you want to know your market intimately. Okay, so if you want to invest in a market, uh, when I say knowing your market, what I mean is whatever type of property you want to invest in, uh, you want to now find the market you want to invest in. And when you need to know that market in terms of how many properties are available. Um, you know, how many are under, like if you're doing single family, how many are available, how many are under contract, you know, how many have sold in the last 30, 60, 90 days, would they sell for, you know, listing price, uh, you know, to sale price, you know, how long were things on the market, uh, you know, all the way, all the way through the stage listings, how long were they on the market under contract? How were they on the, how long were they on the market before they went under contract sold properties? How long were they on the market before they sold, you know, those types of things. So you really need to know your market intimately because real estate is hyper-local. So hyper-local means, you know, state and there's overall demographics and, you know, indicators of the state. And then you've got the cities within the state. Then you have, you know, neighborhoods and subdivisions and subsectors of that city and then within those subdivisions, you have general locations and, you know, in that subdivision and within those locations, you have literally, you know, where you are on that street. Uh, all of that makes a huge difference in real estate when it comes to, you know, what are the rents you could get, whether you're going long term, whether you're doing short term, whether you're doing midterm rentals, uh, you know, what are the property taxes, what are the utility costs, you know, what are the different types of things you need. So when I say knowing the market and knowing the asset and knowing the business, that's what I'm talking about. You got to really get down to the detailed levels of the minutia of what it is you're investing in so that you really know uh, and you really understand the business. So that's really the first step. You got to get that edu education. Uh, you got to really understand what type of properties you want to invest in and understand the markets that you want to be in. Uh, and obviously, you know, there's different levels of markets uh, that you can invest in. You want to typically be in a growth market you know, where you've got at least, you know, a population that is, you know, not declining, you know, generally you want, you know, to go in the path of growth, but there are some, you know, secondary and tertiary markets um, that can be good as well, where the population is kind of holding, not declining, not necessarily growing, but it's good, um, you know, in those areas. And obviously, you know, good schools, you know, good, um, you know, recreational facilities, you know, good support from a retail uh, standpoint. Uh, those types of things, you know, are, are important. And, you know, one of the big things is like the hottest markets, you know, in most areas are around really good schools, really good healthcare, you know, really good 
you know, grocery store, you know, ancillary services and, and good retail corridors, you know, that's what creates and, you know, demand in those prime areas. And one of the ways you can drill down a lot of stuff, where are people moving and all that is, you know, through U-Haul. Uh, they have some really good demographics and statistics on markets in terms of the net migration. So when you're looking at markets, you want to invest out of state or even your own market, you want positive net migration. You want more people moving in than are moving out. Uh, and you can spot those trends and you can even Google that. Now with chat GPT and meet Bard, you know, you can find a lot of really good information using artificial intelligence on demographics that, you know, make that search really easy. Um, so now the way you're going to learn these markets is by looking for deals. So once you decide on what you want to invest in, what type of property, then you can go and, and look at deals. So for residential, you can go to realtor.com, you can get on Zillow. Uh, and you can use those types of search tools uh, to, you know, start looking for different types of properties, learning about them. Uh, you know, what are the what are the pricing and things like that that you know the realtor listings are asking. You never want to look at what the values are based on those internet, uh, like Zillow. What's the you know, uh, you know what's the Z estimate on a property in Realtor.com? Because there are a lot of times those are taking averages. But uh, you know, you want to look at what is stuff sold for, and each of those, you know, will show you pending sales and solds, so you can kind of get an idea what the market's doing. Um, you know, anybody can ask anything for a property. The question is, and anything can go under contract at any price. What is it closing at? What is it selling for? That's what you really want to know, and you want to know what it's sold for compared to the asking price. You know, that tells you if you have a you know demand market or a declining market. Uh, you know, if prices are settling, you know, over asking, you got a hot market. If it's coming in under asking you know, uh, then your market's declining, how much under asking, you know, that makes a big difference. Um, you know, I went through, you know, I was hot and heavy in the business back in 1997 or, uh, back in 2008, and 2009. And, you know, we went from a booming market to, you know, a falling off a cliff and then stayed in the declining market for a number of years. And, you know, we'll talk about that in economic cycles at the end, when I get into the markets and economy, but you really need to understand where you're at in the cycle and understand what's going on. And the best way to do it is to look at the metrics I talked about in terms of you know learning and understanding and knowing your market. So, um, so when it starts coming to finding deals, you want to look at you know Zillow and uh, Realtor.com. There's other stuff out there, but those are the two main ones that pick up most of the MLS, MLS listings. You know, you can look at land and vacant lots as well. You know, to see what's on the market to get you know comps and things like that. Um, and when it comes to commercial, any type of commercial, multifamily, retail, whatever, industrial. Uh, you know, there's Crexy, there's LoopNet. Um, you know, there's a couple of couple of those resources, but those are two of the main ones for commercial properties. If you've got access to CoStar, that's really good property intelligence, you know, software there. And what you want to do is you want to start looking at the types of properties you're interested in, downloading the offering memorandums and reading them word for word, top to bottom. And that's where you'll really learn about the different types of properties, the different metrics in the properties, how they're valued. Uh, you know, what the expenses are, income looks like, what the expenses look like, and then the line items of those expenses when you study the P&Ls for the properties. Um, you know, that really helps you start to understand, you know, the metrics of properties and what goes into them and how they're going to generate cash flows. Um, you know, those are two good, really, really good resources for, you know, actively listed properties. A lot of people will say, oh, loop nets where properties, you know, go to die. I'm going to tell you, my clients are finding deals all the time on LoopNet, on Crexy. But more importantly, you're going to make connections with brokers. And then that's what you want to do is, you know, once you read the stuff and you educate yourself and you looked at the offering memorandums of properties, you can reach out to the brokers and ask questions and make connections. And the brokers will know how much you know and how sophisticated you are by the questions you ask. So you want to make sure that you ask good, informed, intelligent questions because you've read the memorandum. You've looked at that broker's background and profile. So when you reach out to them, you're very specific. Hey, I'm looking for class B you know, multifamily, 200 units and up, you know, in these markets, you know, the Southeast, specifically in Florida, Texas, you know, Mississippi, whatever it is, you want to be very specific. And then, you know, make these connections with brokers and build the relationship and, you know, stay on their radar, reach out to them. Uh, you know, I get deals every day from brokers, you know, in my markets that I've built relationships over the years. And I've passed some of those along to my clients, you know, the types of deals that I'm not interested in anymore. Um, you know, so you always want to you always want to keep those connections going and, uh, you know, network with brokers, network with other people, uh, you know, and let everybody in your circles, everybody in your networks know what you do and what you're looking for. So then deals will start coming in and just kind of flowing into you on a regular basis. And then so that's just the general stuff. Then you can get specific and start marketing for deals directly from the owners. 
And on the residential side, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, pulling lists, doing direct mail, you know, having a Google, you know, website, you know, things like that, that, you know, search engine optimized website with a lead capture page, you know, to generate leads for motivated sellers, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, when it comes to commercial, you can, you know, invest in a, you know, platform like Reonomy where you can get, you know, uh, property owner data and you can do the same thing. You can mail and, you know, call property owners and things like that. Commercial, it's a little different than residential. You got a different kind of an owner a lot of times uh, and things like that. Uh, but the most important thing is to have the system so you can track those leads, you know, track the properties that you're looking at and, you know, create that database so you can stay in touch and, you know, with your sellers and with the different types of properties when you're looking for them, you know, directly from the seller and, um, you know, be able to really drill down into that. And then, um, you know, of course, whenever you're talking to people, uh, one of the last things you want to say when you're talking to sellers and you're talking to, uh, you know, direct, uh, you know, property owners is you always want to ask them, do you have any other property that you want to sell? Or do you know anybody that has any other property they want to sell? Because a lot of times people will know of something or know of somebody um, that, uh, you know, has a property uh, that they might want to sell or, or get out of. So um, those are some of the ways, you know, that you can find deals. You know, the key is you got to be looking, you got to be active, you got to be looking, talking, networking, uh, you know, reaching out to people, following up, following through, and then, you know, just staying in touch with people as you go along. And asking those deeper questions, you know, do you have any more properties? Do you know of anybody that has any properties or business? If you're looking at businesses, all of this kind of stuff applies to businesses as well. How to find businesses that are listed, you know, the biz buy sell, you know, business brokers, things like that. So same principles apply to buying a business, selling a business that apply to all these real estate, uh, you know, metrics we're talking about. And Greg, we, we have Kai, who's got a great question. Um, Kai, I'm unmuting you. There you go. Thank you, Peter. And hi, Greg. And hey, uh, hello, hello, everybody. Hello from Toronto. I'm not sure if I'm the only Canadian here, but hello. Uh, I got a question because I'm spending a lot of time building my business, uh, building my mortgage business here. Uh, but at the same time, I want to find and uh, access more land development deals in Texas and Florida. But my question to you is, when I'm spending so much time building my business, how do I really scale myself uh, and find more deals? Because I'm finding Realtors are, are helpful, um, but they are limited to what they can do. And the networking with land owners can only take me so far. How do I scale my time and get more deals? So you're limited in what you can do personally. So the number one thing is you have to become a leader, delegator, motivator. So you need to have people, processes, and systems in place so that you can leverage as much of that as possible so you don't have to spend your time on anything specifically, your main thing is you want to drill down and say, okay, what's the highest and best use of my time? You know, uh, if I want to do more deals and I want more deal flow, then you need to put systems and people in place so that these leads are coming in automated. And then you have an initial, um, you know, process that kind of scrubs the deals. And then that way you're only looking at the ones that you're really interested in. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to leverage that through technology, through CRMs, through database, you know, things like that. And then you can, you know, you can hire virtual assistants to kind of help you, uh, you know, generate leads and scrub lists and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to look at the ones that kind of meet your criteria and, um, you know, really hone in on those. But uh, the best thing is to put people to work, build those relationships with brokers around the areas that you're looking at, be specific, tell them exactly what you're looking for. And then, you know, create that CRM and database to, to keep up with all that and keep yourself organized and efficient. But think about all of the things that you do that are tying you up in your time. Same thing in your mortgage business and figure out how can I and who can I delegate all of these little administrative things so that I'm just over everything in the organization and it's all just automated and, you know, systemized and I can spend my time doing, you know, the one or two things that are really going to move the needle. And for everybody watching, um, you want to think about where are you, you know, where do you want to be? What is your goal? So for your situation, you want to scale your business. You need to be detailed and articulate what that looks like. What does that mean? Where is it that you want to be in your business? And then you need to look at where am I now? And what do you need to do to bridge that gap? What are the systems, processes, and people that you need to put in place in order to bridge that gap? And then you work it backwards. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that, Kai. Uh, Greg, just to give you an idea, we have um, 
pretty pretty good group here. We have some people who are just starting, uh, those looking in to get into commercial real estate development, some looking to do triple net out of state, some looking to do residential care, assisted living development. So uh, we have a pretty uh, pretty good mix of individuals here. Okay, cool. So let's just rip through a quick high level overview and then we can we can get into talking about those and then y'all you know feel free to raise your hand and ask these questions but you know evaluating deals so you know that's going to come down to uh you know what it is that you're looking you know what you're looking to do so if it's land for development that's going to be a very different you know evaluation process than if you're looking at a single family to rent or if you're looking at you know commercial or multifamily but when it comes to commercial multifamily residential if you're renting, if it's an income property, it's very simple. It's uh, it's income and expenses. So you don't want to overcomplicate it. Every deal is going to come down to income and expenses, and then you're going to have debt service on that deal, and then you're going to have the down payment uh, to get into that deal. Now, there's all kinds of creative ways you can get into deals with no money. I didn't have any money or anything when I first started. I used creative financing uh, to get into my deals, and then you know as I grew and scaled, I used the cash flow for my businesses. But to get started, you don't need money. You need expertise and you need opportunities. Uh, so when it comes to evaluating deals, income and expenses, keep it simple. And you need to know though, what does that income look like? What should it look like? And what are those expenses and what should they look like? So you gotta educate yourself and learn those metrics. And then at the end of the day, you know, once you take your gross income, you subtract your operating expenses, taxes, insurance, maintenance, utilities, uh, you know, those types of things. Uh, you're gonna have what's, a, what's called a net income. And with that net operating income, you're gonna have to pay the debt service. And then if you have an investor, you have to pay them a return on their capital you know, as the property goes along. So when it comes to that, you can pay as much as you want for a property as long as it meets those return requirements you're looking for, and you can return the investment on the capital, uh, equity capital that you raised, the down payment that you raised. And if it's your money, you might say, hey, I want to earn a 10%, 20%, whatever on that down payment. You just need to make sure it you know, meets all those requirements for cash flowing properties. Never bet or bank on appreciation. Don't, you know, don't try to accumulate net worth because that's worthless in a down market. In 2008 and 9, my net worth, you know, I had 30, 40 million dollars worth of, you know, equity and properties. I saw that evaporate overnight. I had, you know, friends and mentors that were in the billions wiped out overnight. So equity means nothing. Cash and cash flow are the kings. So you want to make sure that that property can service the debt and return on that capital as well as return the capital. And if you're okay with breaking even and you get a little tax write-off and all that and property pays itself off over 20, 30 years, you know, that's fine. So whatever your threshold is, that's what you need to know. When it comes to land, you know, there's, there's a lot of checklists when looking at land that's suitable for development. Number one, what do you want to do? What's the highest and best use for that property? Not every use is right for every property. Not every property is right for every use. The biggest mistake people make is putting the wrong thing in the wrong spot on the wrong type of property. So you want to make sure you understand that highest and best use. And, you know, how do you do that? You can hire an appraiser, you know, MAI appraiser that can, you know, appraise the property and kind of help you with that if it's commercial. Um, you know, other than that, you need to know your market. What's missing? What are the gaps in the market? You know, what's going to be the most suitable for this property in this area to drill down to it? And then you got to do all the zoning research. You know, what's it zoned for? The other big mistake people make is they see a property that's zoned, you know, to do 50 units an acre, you know, 15 units an acre or 20 units an acre. And they automatically assume, well, I can build 20 units an acre. Or, you know, if it's residential, you know, and you want to subdivide it into so many lots and it says you can do so many lots an acre and you automatically think you can do it. That's not always true. So there's going to be things that are going to, you know, uh, restrict the capacity and, and the, you know, density that you can get a lot of times in terms of lot coverage, topography, you know, utility requirements, parking requirements, open space, stormwater retention and treatment. You know, all these different things, wetlands, you know, low areas, critical slopes, a lot of different things that are going to limit your ability to develop a property to maximize the density of that property in terms of either units or how many lots you can get. And then this, you know, uh, streets, roads, curbs and gutters like that are going to you know, make a big difference as well. So, you know, that's a high overview of how to evaluate deals. And then we can get into questions on that as we go along. Greg, one question from Lee, which I think is appropriate for right now is, and I, I already know your answer <laughs> to this, but uh, do you always enter into a deal with an exit strategy? Oh, Greg, got, Greg's muted.
Sorry about that. I muted myself so I can cough. <laughs> when I talk a lot, my throat gets dry and allergies this time of year. It's like terrible everywhere. So say that question again. Yeah. So Lee asked, do you always enter into a deal with an exit strategy? No, I always enter a deal with a with multiple exit strategies. So you always want to have multiple exit strategies. Um, you know, whether that's a sale, whether that's a you know owner finance, whether that's a lease option, you know, whether that's a long-term rent, short-term rent, mid-term rent, um, you know, condo something out. So you always want to have multiple exit strategies. You want to always assume you're wrong. Deal's not going to work. You're going to have to fire sale it and, you know, uh, those types of things. So that's how you want to go into a deal so you can protect yourself, you know, from any downside. Always begin with the end in mind. Um, and we have some questions uh, on financing for ground up development. I don't know if you want to answer that now or you want to take that a little bit later. Yeah, we can go. Go ahead and go to the next slide and I'll answer that. So, you know, financing for ground up development can be, you know, a number of ways. It could be traditional bank financing. You know, the bank will typically provide a percentage of cost or value, whichever is less, uh, depending on your experience and your team and all that. It could be, you know, 70 to 80 percent or it could be 50 or 60 percent. Uh, so they'll provide the loan for the acquisition of the property and the construction costs. And then you got to bring the down payment and some reserves. And they're going to want uh, liquidity, net worth requirements, things like that. They're going to want a banking relationship, meaning they're going to want you to deposit money in their bank, uh, you know, especially from the property that you're building. If it's an income property, uh, if you're selling it, then they're going to want you to deposit some personal money in there and have a banking relationship with them. So that's the number one way is, uh, you know, traditional bank finance. You know, again, they're going to lend you. Uh, 70, 50, 60, 70 percent, maybe 80 percent depending on the market. Right now is a very difficult time, but you know when the market's good and they're looking to lend, um, you know they'll they'll be a little more aggressive in the loan to value or loan to cost these days, whichever is less. That's how they lend these days. Uh, the other way is private financing, so you can raise that from investors, uh, from an investor, a group of investors, uh, and then there's you know uh, other you know hard money and private lenders. Um, there's mezzanine debt and commercial, you know, different things, but those are expensive. Uh, so you got to make sure that you've got deep pockets and that, you know, the numbers will work when you're, you know, using you know, alternative types of financing. Great. Um, right. Yeah. Cool. So raising unlimited capital. So raising capital is the same thing as getting in the business itself. So, you know, there's a lot of money out there looking for good operators, good projects to invest in. There's a lot of people that have a lot of money in the bank um, that would be excited about doing deals and, you know, getting involved in deals um, with you and, and, you know, with what you're doing. The first thing they're going to look for is you. Okay. So this is, this is relationship driven. You know, you've got to be an expert. Okay. You've got to know what you're doing. You've got to know the business. You've got to be able to talk it, speak the language, you know, all those types of things. Or if you're not as well versed, let's say, you know, you know a lot of people that have a lot of money that they want to invest and you're not an expert, then you want to partner with somebody who is an expert and then you raise capital for their deals. So it doesn't always have to be your deals. You don't always have to be the operator. Um, you can raise capital, you know, for other people's deals, but you want to make sure that they're a good, sophisticated operator, that they have a good track record, they know what they're doing, you know, and things like that. And you could be the relationship side of that. So um, there's a couple different ways to do it. But number one, you know, when it comes to raising, unli you know, raising unlimited capital to have that, you know, that bank vault that you can tap into anytime, it's a network sport, it's a contact sport. So it's all about making contacts, um, you, you know, getting out, talking to people, letting them know what you're doing, letting them know the opportunities you have without like overwhelming them and just, you know, being one-sided in the conversation. But, you know, you got to be very strategic about your networking if you're doing one-on-one -on -one networking in different areas where your ideal client, your ideal investor is and goes, you want to go there and network with them. And, you know, you want to be strategic about it. When you're networking and you're meeting people and you ask people, you know, what they're doing and they ask you what you do. Oh, I invest in class A and B, C, class A and B multifamily properties in the Southeast. I have investors that come into these deals with us and they get above average returns, but tell me what you're doing. Tell me about you and keep it on them. And as they come back, uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to keep asking you, well, well, tell me more about what you do. Ah, we can get together another time. So that initial meeting, you don't want to like unload on them there. You just want to kind of, you know, drip what you're doing, set up a meeting for another time. So that's one-on-one -on -one networking. You know, when people find out what you're doing and that, you know, you have other people that are, you know, earning above average returns, you can't guarantee anything, you can't promise anything. 
you can use that language, you know, above average returns, um, you know, or good returns, whatever, uh, in these deals, you know, people get interested. Oh, tell me more about that. Uh, the other, you know, easiest way to do it is one to many. So you want to speak to as many people as you possibly can and hold events. You could do something like this, an online event where you talk about how to get involved in, you know, investing in real estate passively. We're going to talk about that later at the end. Um, so you can do an event like this. You can go speak at live events. Um, you can host live events. You can do it virtual webinars. Uh, and then social media, getting on social media, you know, getting yourself booked on podcasts to talk about what you're doing, the opportunities you have and the things you're doing, um, you know, with you and or your partner, depending on where you fall in that stack. If you're the expert, then you go. If your partner's the expert, you get them on, uh, getting on podcasts, um, creating your own social media and become a thought leader in the space or influencer, uh, you know, writing a book and getting that out there. So the key is you want to position yourself as an expert, because you are, again, it's all about education. It's all about building your skills uh, and, you know, providing an opportunity for people to come alongside of you and earn, uh, you know, returns on their cash. And again, there's a lot of great cash looking for good deals and good operators to invest in. You're doing them a service, you know, and, and just remember that you're not asking people for money. You're not begging people for money. You're offering them an opportunity they're already looking for. You know, and like right now, you're hearing the stories in the news about the banks and what's putting the pressure on the banks. All that money parked in a bank that was earning a half a percent or 1% now can go earn four and a half, five, five and a half percent risk-free. So people are moving their money into those things. Uh, so, you know, there's money out there looking for opportunities, uh, you know, to grow and to invest with, just like banks. Banks make money by lending money. So don't be afraid of sitting down with a bank. They're looking for you. They're looking for good deals, good operators. And they got, you know, that's how they make their money is by lending money, whether it's real estate or whether it's your business or even lines of credit. Um, you know, and that's something for everybody here. If you have a business or even yourself personally, you need to make sure you're talking to your banks, getting lines of credit set up so that you can tap that and use that when you need it for yourself personally and for all your businesses. And uh, generally, you know, depending on the volume of money you're putting through the bank, you can get big lines of credit set up. But at the end of the day, raising unlimited capital is all about becoming an expert, becoming an authority, becoming a thought leader, networking, creating and maintaining relationships with people that are looking for opportunities and try to do one to many and think about, you know, how can you speak to the most amount of people uh, at the same time uh, when you're when you're sharing your opportunity and don't be afraid. You know, you're not asking, you're not begging, you're offering an opportunity, you're serving. When you come at everything in business and you know life, your business, your life, your your real your uh, relationships, when you understand and come from a point of service, serving that investor, serving that market, serving that you know whatever it is, your team, uh, it's all about servant leadership. You're providing them a service that they're already looking for. So that is raising uh, unlimited capital. You do those things, you'll have money coming at you all day long. Greg, we do have a, a couple questions with that. I'm gonna. Uh, unmute Shannon. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning. How are you doing, Shannon? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. Uh, I have a question about, so so my whole situation is purpose-driven uh, development. So I, I've been in the nonprofit sector for seven years. I'm an expert in food waste uh, rescue and food access initiatives. I recently developed a, a public benefit corporation here in Colorado, and I'm, I'm working to develop a uh, essentially a food hub uh, concept that that's uh, focused on the urban market. So it's not an agricultural solution. It's more uh, focused on on providing services for the for the urban communities and for supporting nonprofit efforts. Um, my questions kind of revolve around uh, do, do, when when I'm looking for investors for something like this. Um, am I still looking primarily at like increase, you know, outsized rate of return, those kind of like the, like kind of the standard conversations that you're having with investors, or is there a market for uh, like, like I've, I've heard the term social impact investing and I'm trying to figure out is when I approach conversations like that, should I really kind of lean heavily into the purpose-driven component and getting involved with something that's, that's supporting community efforts and community health? Or should I still really kind of kind of hammer in on on the rate rate of return and what I can do for their pocket? And and how would you kind of approach that type of scenario? 
Yeah. So you want to understand who your ideal investor is. And it sounds like a, you know, social driven, social purpose investor is who you're looking for. So yeah. yeah, lead with that. That's what you're doing. You're providing a service that's needed in the community. You're giving back, you're making an impact. And uh, you're looking for like-minded investors that, you know, not only want to make a, a good return, but also want to make an impact, you know, that want to provide what's needed in the community. So, you know, I would definitely say lead with that. And there's different types of investors. Some are just looking for the highest returns they can get. Some right. are looking, you know, to invest in, uh, you know, environmental friendly products, you know, or projects, and some are looking to invest, you know, more in social projects. And there's some that that's all they invest in. They won't do anything else but social impact projects. Okay. Now, if I'm focused on that group of people, I, I guess the nuts and bolts of the question is how, on a percentage wise, like how low can I go with, with offers of like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to position what I'm offering to 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 kind of uh, increase our sustainability and make it as easy as possible for us to be able to 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 make our notes and get through the process and and do the cash out and everything like that. So, what kind of percentages am I looking at starting the conversation with? I mean, we're we're talking five, seven, eight, ten. Like, what, I'm I'm all over the map with ranges. Yeah. So the benchmark you're up against right now is risk-free return in the fives. So you've got mm -hmm. to offer at least that, if not, you know, more upside to that. And it depends on, you know, what kind of structure it is. Do they get equity at the back end? I mean, there's a lot of variables there. At the end of the day, depending on how many investors you're looking for, it's really up to them. So if you're not sure where that stands, you know, the real question is what can your project return? And then you, you know, you offer that to them. So you think about, hey, what can I offer? And then you go to the investor uh, or you can do a little bit of market discovery and you can go to the investor and say, here's, here's the opportunity I have. Would you be interested? And what type of return are you looking for for something like this? This is a social impact. You know, there's not a whole lot of, if there's not a lot of profit or upside, there's not a tremendous amount of profit or upside compared to a venture capital deal you can invest in or, you know, a 20 or 30% return investment. Uh, but, you know, this one can provide a return. You know, what would you be willing to do in exchange for, you know, being able to impact the community, invest in this project? You know, what would that look like for you? So, Market discovery, what can the deal support? And, um, you know, what are you able and willing to offer the market? And okay. the market will tell you what they're looking for. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. Great. All right, building your team and finding the right guidance. So, you know, I let I, I kind of hit on that earlier in a couple of conversations. You want to become a leader, delegator, motivator. Uh, number one, so you need to understand that you you are the leader of your organization, your deals, everything you're doing. It all starts from, you know, leadership from the bottom up. So a lot of times that leadership pyramid looks like this, right? With the CEO at the top, and then you know you have your you know executive levels and your management levels, and then your line levels underneath that. So I always flip that pyramid upside down. So I'm at the bottom, the CEO, the owner, the, you know, the operator, you're at the bottom of that leadership ladder serving up. So you got to give everybody in the organization everything they need to be successful, tools, training systems and support. Uh, but more importantly, clear direction and no uncertain terms, exactly what's expected and when. Then you measure that performance, you hold it accountable to the goal, then you provide that immediate feedback and then you reset, redirect and go from there. So you want to look for the way I built my company from zero. I had no experience, no money, no nothing. And I was doing little remodeling, handyman work, did 250000 my first year. Literally, I would replace a screen, do a door lock, you know, just little stuff. The way I started moving from there to doing multi-million dollar beach houses was I went and found the best people in the market that I could find doing what it was that I wanted to do. And I brought them on board and, um, you know, to build this company with me. Uh, and I coached them to success. But, you know, the most important thing I did was I brought them in and I let them do their thing. So the analogy I always use is the one we saw recently with Tampa Bay. They wanted to rent, win a Super Bowl, right? What did they do? They got the best quarterback in the NFL on their team and they won a Super Bowl. But you think they took brought Tom Brady in and said, hey, let's kind of cross train you. Maybe we can make you a little bit of a running back and a little bit of a wide receiver. No. They brought Tom Brady in to throw touchdowns because that's what he does to get you to the Super Bowl. So, you know, they obviously, you know, coached him from the standpoint of whatever, but he's an expert. He knew what he was doing. So you want to find great people that are experts at what it is you want to do, that have been where you want to go, and that have the experience that you're looking for to build that company. Uh, and then you want to put them in the right position and let them do their job and coach them to success and understand not everybody's going to do everything the way you're going to do it. Uh, so, you know, you need to give people the room, you know, to make mistakes, to fail, to grow and understand 
They might have a different approach, but at the end of the day, as long as it gets you to the goal in the most efficient, profitable, you know, process, you know, fashionable, then let them do their thing. You know, don't try to change what they're doing if it's been working with them, you know, working for them for years. My philosophy in business, how can I make the most amount of money in the least amount of time with the least amount of energy and effort possible? So you want to have that in your team uh, and you want to have great people. You want to have good attitudes, right? You can't retrain a good attitude. Uh, you want to have people that are, you know, team players, have good personalities that work well with each other. And then you want to coach those people, put the right people in the right positions and coach them to success. Let them do their job. I've been a coach and a mentor my entire career. Uh, I didn't run after a certain point, any of my organizations. I had great people, great leaders. I coached them to success and I let them do their thing. And what does coaching to success mean? It means you give them everything they need. You give them that, you know, tools, training systems and support. You give them clear direction, what you expect and when. And then you measure that performance and you hold them accountable. But more importantly, you let them uh, you let them solve their own problems. You let them set their own goals. You don't micromanage them. You don't do it for them. You let them think through the situations and, uh, you know, provide you with the goals, you know, help measure their own performance and then provide the solutions to the, you know, answer that you're looking for. If you got the result that you were looking for, great. You reward that performance. Let everybody know publicly. If you're not getting the result, you redirect that in private and you evaluate and ask them. You know, Peter, we had this goal. You were supposed to get this done by Friday. It didn't happen. Why do you think we were not able to meet the goal that you established for yourself? And then Peter will think through it. Well, you know, I didn't have this or I missed that or did this. So then, you know, that's on the leader. Well, I need to give Peter that tools, training systems and support so he can reach that goal, you know, or he just can't do it. And if he can't do it, so you got to have a, either a can't do or a won't do. If he can't do it, why can't he do it? You know, if he's got everything he needs, tools, training systems and support, clear direction, um, and he's still not getting it done, well, then do I have the right person in the right seat? Always comes back to the leader. If he's a won't do, you cut him, you get rid of him immediately and you replace him. So that's the other thing. If you get a sour apple in the bunch, get rid of it quick or it's going to rot the rest of it. So, you know, part of being a great leader is dealing with everything, you know, immediately, uh, letting everybody know when you bring them on board, hey, this is a trial basis. Uh, we're going to know really quick whether this is a good fit for you, whether, you know, uh, you're a good fit for us. And if it looks like it's working out, great. And if not, we're going to go our separate ways. So you always let people know up front that this is a trial basis uh, and that, you know, you may have to part ways, but we're going to part ways, friends, you know, and, and things like that. So always don't let things go. Always take care of things immediately. The other big thing is when you're building a team, you want to make sure you got per personalities that mesh, you know, so think about the different personalities you have in the business, make sure that they mesh and then do personality profiling, personality testing, the DISC profiling, D-I-S-C. It's free, it's online, you can do it. You wanna learn about the different types of personalities, how they interact with each other so that you know how to best approach people and they know how to best approach you and each other. So you wanna do those DISC profiles and then everybody in the organization needs to be sent the results so everybody knows uh, how everybody is, how they operate, how they're wired so that everybody can work with each other in the best, most efficient manner. These are some of the things that I spent, you know, thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars on in all my companies, training my people, pouring into them and developing them. And that's the other thing. Not only do you need to constantly, continually develop yourself, I've never stopped learning. I'm always developing myself. I'm always pouring into myself. You need to pour into your people and your team as well. So I always brought consultants in. I did trainings. I did retreats. Uh, I even pooled when I was a builder my subcontractors, vendors, and suppliers together. And I did trainings with all them because again, we want to make the most amount of money in the least amount of time with the least amount of energy and effort possible. How do you do that? Everybody on your team needs to be the same way, as efficient and effective as possible. How do you do that? You train them, you develop them, you pour into them, and then everybody thrives and everybody flourishes. And some of the best mentors I've ever, I've ever had were my own employees. I never built a house before I built a house. I hired somebody who had done hundreds of them and I learned from them. I let them do their job. Uh, and that's the last part of being a leader. So how do you know the mark of a great leader? Their team. So the organization should run better, more efficient without you generally than it does with you. And whenever I would hire somebody after I initially you know, did the initial interview, I would always leave the office and I would tell them, you go talk to my employees and they'll tell you what kind of leader I am, what kind of company this is. Uh, and, you know, um, 
what it's like to work here. So the true mark of a great leader is how well the team does, how well the organization does when you're not there and how much it can grow without you. Great. Uh, we have a couple, one one question from Jack. It doesn't pertain to this slide, but I, uh, I think it's yeah, still- Yeah, that's all right. We can go right. to the next slide and then we'll take questions as we go along. Okay. Um, so Jack says that most podcasts focus on ground up entrepreneurs. Any advice for individuals who might have some money in the bank to, to find deals? And he is specifically looking at multifamily. And he also wants to know what do you think about multifamily syndication? Yeah, so multifamily syndication is great. The question would be when you say you're looking for deals, you're talking about to invest in passively or do you want to do your own deal? So that would be the big question. Uh, maybe you can get an answer to that while we're while we're chatting here. But um, you know, whether you're looking to invest in your own deals and do your own deals or whether you're you know looking to invest passively, those are two different you know conversations. But if you're a passive investor, and we're going to talk about this at the end, but we can go ahead and cover it now. Uh, and multifamily syndications, they can be outstanding if you've got the right operator, the right sponsor. So you want to make sure you're investing in the right sponsor, you know, in the right properties, in the mar right markets, in the right deals. So how do you know that? Generally, the easiest way to do it is to find a sponsor that, you know, that's good, that has a good track record, you know, that's been successful, been in the business 10 years or longer, preferably has gone through a market cycle. If you can find people uh, that have been in the market since 2009 and, you know, went through that and survived. I mean, that's always preferable because we know we went through it. We know what's going on. So you want to look for seasoned investors, solid operators. They have a good team. Uh, you know, they have good quality projects and markets that, you know, you're interested in and things like that. So there's a little bit of education you got to do about, you know, on your, on your, you know, people that you're looking to invest in and their track record and things like that. And, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, how do you know a solid operator? It starts with how do they respond to you? So when you first reach out to them, what does their website look like? Um, you know, what does their social media look like? Is everything consistent and professional and, you know, things like that? What do their deals look like? You know, uh, how do they, you know, how does it, how's the response when you go to sign up for their newsletter or get in their investor portal? You know, are they communicating with you efficient, uh, efficiently and effectively? Uh, you know, things like that. Get on some of their investment webinars, you know, stuff like that. Look at different deals that they're doing and, uh, you know, all those types of things. So that's kind of how you vet somebody to invest passively. If you're going to invest in your own, um, what was the initial part of that question? I, mean, I think I covered it. Um, just how uh, advice for those who have a few, few, few million in the bank to get in deals looking at multifamily. Yeah. So that would be the biggest question. Do you want to, do you want to do your own or do you want to partner with somebody? And if you're looking for your own, it all boils down to you want to get the most income you can get for the dollar invested, uh, you know, leveraged in the right way. So you're going to want to look at, you know, markets and assets that are going to provide you with the most possible income you can get for that investment. And, you know, if you're starting out initially, you know, I wouldn't go to all the markets where all the competition are, where everybody's looking. Uh, you, you know, you can get great deals in secondary and tertiary markets, you know, that are stable, you know, that are, that are good investments. Generally, they're going to have, you know, better yielding returns for you. So the first thing is understand what's your goal, what kind of return are you looking for, what types of deals are you comfortable with, and then you you kind of go from there. Start with where you are with what you know based on your own resource, uh, resources. Great. I'm going to ask, I believe it's M Imran to come on. He's got a question to deal with passive investing. Hey, Mr. Greg, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm um, good. Thank you for taking the time. Um, so I, I currently live in New York and um, I'm into the restaurant business, quick service restaurants. I have uh, multiple locations of uh, like, for example, Dunkin' Donuts, Taco Bell's um, and some other franchises. And I, I can say like I met approximately 50 to 100,000 a month and i i want to replace that income in uh, real estate um and what so what's the best my time is very limited um and uh, i started investing in texas into single family uh houses 
but uh, with the interest rates uh, at, high, at high levels and the HOA and the taxes, I break even or um, I, I'm, I lose a little bit of money. So I know there's a lot of, I mean, I feel like there will be appreciation in Texas. So that's why I went that route, but I don't know which real estate I can invest in and find those deals where I can actually cash flow uh, the way I, I cash flow in the restaurant business. Yeah, yeah. And I've got a strong restaurant background as well. So um, you're speaking my language. Uh, when it comes to the highest yield you can get on residential, that's going to be short-term or mid-term rentals. They're going to generate way more income than a, than a year-round long-term rent, rental will. Um, and then again, if you're going to invest in single-family rentals and you, you know, whatever type you want, if you want, you know, long-term renters, then you're going to want to go into a market where you can get, you know, if you're looking for cash flow, the most cash flow. The real question you got to ask yourself is how quickly are you looking to replace that income? And obviously, probably as soon as possible. So you want to look at what are my highest yielding investments to be able to do that? And again, generally, short-term rentals are going to be the best because you can get a property that, you know, at the same price that you can rent it year-round for, but you can put it in a short-term rental program. Um, and it's going to generate, you know, two to three times the income. Now you got to be careful because short-term rentals, everybody was doing it in the whole pandemic. It kind of skewed the short-term rental market a little bit because people were traveling inside the country. So now that we've opened up, people are traveling abroad. There's a lot of short-term rentals that were done just anywhere, any street USA that are under pressure. So you want to be in markets that have good year round, um, you know, uh, travel markets and economies, you know, where people are visiting year round not seasonal like where I was, you know, in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, very seasonal. We'd had 28 weeks that we would do all of our income. You know, really that was it. It was 28 weeks that you would have that you would rent. So we're not going to generate the income that you're going to generate in a lot of these other areas. And properties were expensive. You go into the mountains, uh, you know, in different areas of the country, you know, that's where you're going to do more year-round business. Florida's, you know, uh, California's, you know, coastal areas, you, you're going to do more year-round business up in, you know, Maine, you know, some of those areas. So you just want to kind of, if you're going to do short term, you just need to be in a place that is what it is. It's a it's a vacation destination. It's year round, as much year round as possible. Uh, if you're looking at, you know, um, you know, long term renters, again, you you know, you want to make sure that you're buying. Uh, you know, you don't want to look at appreciation if you're looking at cash flow. Remember, appreciation doesn't mean anything if the market turns. It's all about cash flow. So you should be looking for what's going to be the best cash flow. You want to be careful in terms of going to these markets that have really cheap houses, you know, that are talking about, you know, high returns, because, you know, if you've got a low rent area, you know, where you get those skewed, you know, acquisition to rental price delta, a lot of times those can be difficult to manage. You know, if you got somebody who's paying $800 to $1,000 a month in rent in the Midwest somewhere and the property's 50 to 100 grand, that's, you know, that can be a challenge. So you want to make sure you kind of keep an eye on that. And then beyond that, the highest yields in general in real estate are going to be in the commercial, uh, you know, in the commercial markets, you know, whether it's retail, you know, office in some areas, you know, storage, you know, that's a retail business within within real estate, um, you know, mobile home parks, you know, but those those are hard to scale. You need a lot of units for those to make a lot of money. So um, does that answer it for you? I, I muted him because of the, in the background. Okay. He sounds like an individual that'd be great uh, to do some one-on-one -on -one coaching, Greg. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from a, so if you're looking to invest passively and you don't have time, you just want to focus on making as much money, grow and scale your existing business, get more units open or different, you know, other restaurant franchises. That's another strategy too. A lot of people forget that their business, like in your situation, is a great cash flow. So, you know, scale your business, generate more cash flow, and then invest passively and other good qualified operators and sponsors, you know, like people that I work with, um, you know, like Simon and Peter on their deals. And I've got other people that do, um, you know, multifamily syndication that I coach, invest with them and let them compound your cash because they're going to get you a two to three X return and, you know, three to five years on your money. Then you can focus on your restaurants, scale that, build that thing up and then sell it off, uh, you know, for an exit. So I work with a lot of people doing that, growing and scaling their existing business, invest passively while they're doing that exit that and then you know they can start doing their own deals as they go along or even partner with other people another way to do it is to become a private lender might as well talk about that so you can become a private lender or a hard money lender and uh, you could take your money and put it to work that way and if you don't have the time to manage that then you can invest you know with somebody who has a hard money or private money fund and that's where 
you know, you can get you know, two to three to four points up front on a loan. Let's say you're going to loan somebody $200,000 for a single family home that they're going to buy, you know, do the whole burst strategy or flip it. So you lend them the money. Uh, you get two to three to 4% up front of the total loan amount. You get a 10 to 12, you know, 14% interest along the way. Um, you know, depending on prevailing rates and where interest rates are, it's, it's been anywhere in between there the last few years. Uh, and then when they're done, you know, usually it's a short-term loan, you know, six months to a year, they pay you back uh, and you've, you know, you've earned all that yield on your money. So that's a great way to compound your cash as well as to become a, you know, private lender, a hard money lender. And, you know, your money is secured in the real estate. So when you do that, you want to get the first deed of trust that you're just like the bank. So you get a mortgage on the property, you know, there's a note and deed of trust and everything is spelled out in there. So, you know, if they default or if they mess up, you take the property over and you sell it. But again, the key to that is you want to have good operators that you're investing in, whether it's investors or if it's a fund that's funding investors. So that's a great way to earn some, you know, uh, delta as a private lender, a hard money lender, um, and, you know, put your cash flow that you're generating your business to work. Um, the other thing I forgot to talk about is, for, you know, tax benefits. So you can get some really good tax benefits investing in, you know, real estate. If you're an operator and you're a real estate professional and you can get real estate professional status, you can use the losses from passive investments to offset your active income. Uh, Short-term rentals are really cool because there's an exclusion that right now, and uh, you know, the amount you can depreciate is going to be stepping down over the next few years. But right now, I think it's still around 80% going into next year that if you own a short-term rental, you can do uh, a cost segregation study and take accelerated depreciation and use that to offset your active income without having to be a real estate professional. So if you're a restaurant, uh, owner, or if you're a professional or a medical or dental professionals, I work with I work with a lot of medical and dental professionals. I work with professional athletes. Um, I work with people that are you know not real estate professionals. You can take advantage of the short-term rental exclusion, the short-term rental loophole, uh, and you can use those losses to offset active W-2 income or other uh, other things like that. And if you become a real estate professional, then you can offset all your capital gains and all that stuff with you know depreciation in real estate. So sometimes even if the property doesn't make a lot of money, just the tax savings alone, uh, buy a multifamily property that breaks even, you can do uh, cost segregation, take accelerated depreciation on that as a real estate professional and offset all of your capital gains income, your active income and all that. I'm not a CPA, so talk to your CPA about all that. Do you want to hit on your outlook on the economy, Greg? Yeah, so we're getting to the end of the slides now. I think we've covered everything and then we'll just, you know, take more questions as well. But yeah, <clears throat> generally the, you know, the economy moves in cycles. It's the business cycle. You have peaks and you have valleys. You know, bad times never last, good times never last. It rolls in peaks and valleys. Generally 15 year plus or minus cycles. Our last big rollover cycle was 2009. So we're we're now in the process of rolling over and, you know, on, on the cusp of another, you know, down cycle for a number of years as it, as it, you know, rolls over, you know, when it comes to where we're at in the cycle right now, we're in a tightening cycle. So when the economy is running hot, you know, the central banks and federal reserve needs to cool the economy. Federal reserve has two mandates, steady employment and stable prices. So when the economy is running hot, a lot of people are employed, which is good, but prices can run. So they need to get prices back down to that 2% target number, which, whatever, they came up with it, it's arbitrary, may or may not be the right number. Um, if you ask Congress, they'd probably tell you 1%. But they need to get inflation down. So they have to cool the economy. They do that by tightening financial conditions. And what does that mean? That means they raise interest rates. So it's more expensive to borrow, people take less risk, and banks lend less money, it gets more difficult uh, to get credit. So that's tightening financial conditions. Excuse me, my throat's getting dry. Talking too much. So the opposite is true in a, um, you know, valley of the economy, in a slowing economy, generally, you know, uh, unemployment rises, you know, inflation will generally be down, but unemployment, unemployment's rising and the economy is slowing, growth is slowing. So then the Federal Reserve wants to come in and stimulate the economy. And that's where they do things like lowering interest rates typically. And now QE, which was the result of the 2009 financial crisis, QE is where they come in and uh, inject money into the economy by uh, encouraging risk. They buy treasuries, so that money would normally go into treasuries. 
because there's no yield. Now we'll go into risk assets and we'll lend. Banks will lend money because they can borrow money from the Fed at low interest rates. So that spurs development and that spurs economic activity, creates jobs, creates growth. That's the theory uh, of the economic cycles. And that's how the economic cycles work. You know, peaks and valleys, good times never last, bad times never last. The key is you need to know where you are in the cycle and take advantage of it. So you want to lead the market up. So when I say lead the market up, you can be a little bit more aggressive. You can take a little bit more risk. You know, generally money is cheaper. Uh, it's easier to get things done. But you want to make sure you understand where you're at in the cycle. <clears throat> and it's always better to know the top than the bottom because you want to get out at the top, recoup, and lead the market down as it goes to the bottom so you can buy back into the bottom. So leading the market up in the top, let's say you're flipping houses, okay? If you buy a house, <clears throat> if you flip a house for 200 grand today, you can probably flip that same house for 220 next week and then 250 the following week. So you want to lead that market up and you can be a little more aggressive on what you're paying. When that cycle turns like it is now, when the housing market starts to cool and the economy starts to cool and things like that, now you want to lead the market down. So if you if you sold the house for 300 grand last week, well, now you might only sell it for 280 and you might only sell it for 250 next. You might only sell it for two. So you want to kind of know where you're at in that cycle. Housing market's a little messed up right now because the whole inventory situation, there's hardly any inventory anywhere. Of course, some markets are better than others, but you know we're back in a cycle where rates came down you know, and put a lot of pressure on the housing market with the spring market. Um, rates have risen here recently. So now the market is back under pressure a little bit. We're coming into the summer months when things tend to slow down in the real estate market. You'll have a little spurt in the fall. And then when it gets near the holidays and in the winter, market generally you know, falls off a cliff, transactions decline, and uh, inventories build. <clears throat> the biggest problem we have in the country right now is there's no inventory. So it's a great time to get into development because there's a 10-year backlog. So right now with the current capacity of the home builders in this country, if we could go full force, it would take 10 years to build the, our way through the lack of inventory and demand in the market right now. So the only thing that's going to change that is people coming to market with their properties at scale and, you know, most people that refinanced over the last couple of years when rates were sub 3%, <clears throat> you know, they're not going to do that because there's no incentive for them to refinance, you know, at the current rate. So from an economic standpoint, we're very close. There's a lot of debate of whether or not we're going to go into a recession, which is just slowed growth. Uh, you know, a real recession is when you see job loss at scale. So you're seeing some bloated tech companies lay some people off. That doesn't really move the needle when it comes to unemployment. Unemployment, real unemployment in a recessionary environment is when you see mass blue collar jobs lay off or you're seeing people at scale, you know, losing their jobs. The you know, labor market is still really strong. There's more jobs than there are people willing to take them. <clears throat> so it's going to take a while for that to adjust, which is going to keep pressure on prices, which is going to keep the Federal Reserve, you know, tightening and keeping, you know, financial conditions tighter for longer. So that's going to keep pressure on a lot of things, which has affected the commercial real estate market. We're seeing a lot of distress there. There's going to be a lot, a lot of opportunities there. That's uh, putting pressure on the housing market. The opportunities there are development because there's no inventory. Uh, and it's going to put pressure on businesses because businesses can't get money and they can't borrow money um, and can't get credit. And it's going to create opportunities in the markets as the markets correct. And as these things settle out, once everything is done and settled and the Federal Reserve can you know, uh, you know, stop hiking and more importantly, start stimulating, that's when you can be back into another bull cycle and um, we can see, you know, conditions change and take advantage of, of opportunities in the markets and crypto and, you know, things like that. Cool, any, any questions? Yes, yeah, so we had a couple, couple of good questions here. Uh, one of these from Michael. And he's in the middle of his first flip, trying to decide if he should sell when the flip is done or if he should do a short-term rental. Uh, what margin should I look at to be motivated to sell? You know, that's a personal decision. Um, and it depends on what you're looking to do. You know, if you sell that flip, uh, you know, there's going to be a capital gain event on that. So you got to look at what your net going to be after taxes if you sell it. You know, what are you going to net at the end of the day? <clears throat> and then what can you do with that leftover investment and move it forward versus if you left it in there, refinanced, you can pull out a percentage of that at some point. Rates are a little tough right now, but when rates come down, you'll be able to refinance, pull some equity out, and then that property will continue to cash flow. That's the best of all worlds, you know, is to be able to refi, pull your equity out, the money you put in it, and profit or percentage of your profit out. And then, 
you know, continue to move forward with that. And then that's tax-free. When you refinance a property, pull your money out of it, that's a tax-free event and move forward from there. So it really is up to you, you know, if you want to operate those and maintain those, or if you want to, you know, build and sell. And it's really going to boil down to your, you know, preferences and how much money you can make. So that one is an easy one. The numbers will tell you, you know, what to do there. Um, another question we have are alternative funding sources for multifamily properties, including fourplexes. Can they qualify for DSCR loans? Absolutely. There's DSCR lenders out there for everything, for single family, duplexes, quads, tries, multifamily, short-term rentals. So yes, there are DSCR lenders out there. They're going to be a little bit more expensive, but a lot of times they, they might even be non-recourse. They might not even require good credit or any credit score. They, you know, there's some that are all the gamuts of all that. Some require a good you know, 680, 700, 720 credit score. The better your credit score, the cheaper it can be sometimes. With no credit score or low credit score, it just costs you more money. So you just got to run the numbers. But yeah, absolutely. There's, there's DSR, uh, DSCR lenders out there. That's debt service coverage ratio uh, or debt service you know, coverage lenders that look at the property and the income the property generates, net income it generates to service the debt. And they base the loan solely on that uh, and not the borrower. And that's a big part of commercial. You know, commercial, they look more at the property than you, but, you know, you still have to have net worth and you still have to have good credit for commercial properties with a traditional bank and with, you know, uh, things like that. But once you get the experience and you're into multifamily and you're doing agency debt and things like that, they're not looking at you and running your credit. They're looking at the property and your experience and, you know, your net 